fellow Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Jake, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. After a bit of a dreary spring here in London, though, are we really that surprised? We can look forward to the summer solstice on the 21st of June, the longest day of the year. On this day, the Earth's axis of rotation is aligned directly towards the sun, and consequently, the sun will be at its highest altitude of the year. The solstice also marks the beginning of astronomical summer. Some people think it's a bit strange to think of the start of summer as starting with the longest day, with those following becoming shorter and shorter. It feels a bit bleak, doesn't it? An alternative definition shifts things forward and has the summer equinox as the midpoint of summer instead, with the days getting longer as we approach the height of summer, and shorter as it draws to an end. This would have the summer as starting on the 6th of May, but this is a bit messy when we think about astronomical transition points. Having the seasons aligned with the solstices and equinoxes makes great sense in astronomy. We also have meteorological summer, which starts on the 1st of June, about halfway between our previous two dates. Meteorological summer is more concerned with when it feels like it's summer. And this makes sense, it still takes some time for the Earth's surface to heat up enough to actually feel hot. To complicate things just a little bit more, don't forget that the seasons are flipped around for the southern hemisphere. This will be the winter solstice down under. This month we have a supermoon on the 14th of June. A supermoon occurs when the moon is at its closest approach to the Earth, consequently it will appear slightly larger in the sky. In this case, the supermoon is coinciding with the moon's full moon phase, though it can occur during a new moon, remaining unseen to observers on the Earth. The Native American lunar naming system describes this particular full moon as the strawberry moon, as this tended to be the best time of year to start gathering strawberries as they began to ripen. From the UK, head outside after 10.30pm to see the moon rising from the southeastern horizon, and it should appear larger and brighter than usual. This month is a great opportunity to view Markarian's chain, a string of galaxies located in the Virgo cluster, which itself is a neighbourhood of roughly 2,000 galaxies. Markarian's chain is located close to the constellation of Virgo. To spot it, look towards the west from 11.30pm, and find the midpoint between the star Vindemiatrix in Virgo and the bright star Denebola in the constellation of Leo. Your sky scouring will be rewarded with a view of an expanse of seven spiral and lenticular galaxies. A small telescope will allow you to see all the galaxies as fuzzy lights, but a larger aperture will begin to reveal their structures. A pair of close galaxies in the middle of the chain are of particular note. These are often called Markarian's eyes and they are interacting galaxies galaxies whose gravitational forces affect one another. The larger galaxy of the pair, NGC 4438, appears to be highly distorted and is thought to have been a spiral galaxy before colliding with its neighbour. If you venture a little further to the south, you can also see M87, another impressive galaxy in its own right. As a supergiant elliptical galaxy, it is one of the most massive galaxies in the local universe. The galaxy was catapulted to celebrity status when the Event Horizon Telescope released images of the supermassive black hole residing in its galactic core. 
This was the first time a black hole had ever been directly imaged. Appropriately, this monster has been dubbed Pavehi, a Hawaiian word meaning the adorned, fathomless, dark creation. For those sky-watching in the Southern Hemisphere, keep an eye out for Mercury as it reaches its greatest elongation on the 16th. This is its largest separation from the Sun in the sky. It can be seen shining with a golden hue in the early morning just before dawn, below the much brighter Venus. If you're near Sydney, expect to find it rising from the eastern horizon at 6am, shining brightly until the sun rises at 7. With a steep inclination along the ecliptic and a large separation from the sun, Mercury will be easily viewable along with its cosmic neighbour. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, that's rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Welcome to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. This is where uh, we both choose a story that has broken in astronomy in the past month, and uh, then we go head-to-head afterwards putting that to the public opinion on our Twitter poll. Now, last week, uh, myself and Patricia went head-to-head with our two different stories, and the winner of the Twitter poll for last month was Patricia for her story on the speed of sound on Mars. I know I'm very sad about it, but I'm feeling better about this month. And this month, we are joined by our new astronomy education officer, Jess. So welcome, Jess, to the podcast. Well, it's great to have you and looking forward to our cosmic news this week. I'm going to be kicking things off, speaking about the news story that has really taken the astronomy world by storm. Uh, This is, of course, the released image of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our own galaxy, known as Sagittarius A star. The name of the black hole, that is, not our galaxy. So this was released on the 12th of May, which as of the time of recording, was just a few days ago. And this was huge news. Of course, we watched it in the office. We did. It was a very exciting day, I think, for everyone. A very exciting Mm. day, absolutely. So that was unveiled by the European Southern Observatory. Imaging, yes, that supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. This is, of course, the second black hole to ever be imaged, following the supermassive black hole at the centre of M87, that we did speak about uh, in the Cosmic Diary earlier. Now, M87 is a bit of a monster of a black hole. It weighs about six and a half billion suns, so it's absolutely massive. It's about 53 million light years away from us, so it is very, very far away. It's about 2,000 times larger than our own supermassive black hole, Sagittarius A star. Monst- absolute monster, monster of a black hole. Monster of a hole. black hole. Absolute wow. monster. Tell me more about it. Well, it just so happens that M87 is so large in size that if it were placed where the Sun currently is in the solar system, it would engulf the orbits of all of the planets of the solar system. Whereas Sagittarius A star, at the centre of our galaxy, uh, if placed where the Sun currently is, would only reach up to the orbit of Mercury. So it is much smaller. It's about 2,000 times smaller than the one at the centre of M87, Pavehi, as it has been dubbed. And that was imaged back in 2019. Of course, it was huge news. Uh, Do you remember when the news broke back in 2019? Oh, goodness. I remember. I don't remember exactly where I was. I don't remember where I was. I don't think it's... 
Well, I, I'm about to say I don't think it was one of those I remember where I where I was when it happened stories. Though it probably was for yeah, a lot of people. I was going to say for some astronomers, for some people in general, I think it was massive news. Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly where I was, but I remember the feeling of importance that surrounded it, knowing that that particular image would be one that would be published in school science books for decades to come, and it felt like a big moment. I think. But now, they've only gone and one-upped themselves. Mm-hmm. A bigger moment. Because on the 12th of May, the European Southern Observatory unveiled an image of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our very own galaxy using the Event Horizon Telescope. Now, what is the Event Horizon Telescope? I would love it if you told me. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the Event Horizon Telescope is a worldwide network of over eight radio telescope observatories So it's not a single telescope, it is a very many telescopes. In fact, at least 66 individual telescopes were involved. Right. So it should be called the Event Horizon Telescopes. Exactly, yes. Okay. Not quite as catchy, but it yeah. would be uh, more technically sound. But as it turns out, they are spread all over the world. There's one observatory in the Atacama Desert in Chile, one in Hawaii, one in Mexico. There's one near the South Pole. Greenland, the French Alps, Arizona, so on and so forth. Oh, wow, very spread out. They are spread out all over the place. Now, when you sort of combine all of the data acquired by all of these telescopes, you effectively create one large virtual telescope that is the size of the distance between the two most distant telescopes. So you basically get an Earth-sized virtual telescope that we can think of as being, you know, almost 13,000 kilometers wide as opposed to a single radio telescope, which can be typically maybe 70 meters wide. So the radio telescope at Jodrell Bank is about 70 meters wide. But this uh, Event Horizon Telescope can technically be thought of as being almost 13,000 kilometers wide. Incredible. It's incredible. And you need a telescope of that size to view these supermassive black holes in any kind of detail. So that's what they had to do, and that's what they did. Now, Sagittarius A-star is about 27,000 light years away from us. And it is very large, but again, it's not the biggest of supermassive black holes. So it was very difficult to image. It sits in the constellation of Sagittarius, hence the name Sagittarius A-star, of course. And the problem with viewing it is that it sits right in the center and it is obscured by a central bulge filled with gas and dust. And as well as that, there's a spiral arm that is sort of making its way in between us and it. So it makes it very difficult to see. So up until this image was released, there was no visual evidence that it was a black hole. It wasn't certain what it was. Theoretically, it could have been proven to be a black hole, but it hadn't been visually seen yet. It could have been something else that wasn't a black hole, you're saying? It, We could have imaged it and found something else there instead. As long as it was an object that is sufficiently massive enough, it could have been something else, some unknown object. I was going to say a rubber duck, but I don't think it could have been a Maybe not a rubber duck. duck. Maybe the densest rubber duck in the known universe. One of them has to be the densest. That would probably be more exciting than a supermassive <laughs> black hole. But unfortunately, they saw that it was indeed a supermassive black hole. And like you say, we didn't know exactly what it was. We knew it was massive enough to really gravitationally affect the stars and the objects around it. 
In fact, one star was found to be orbiting around this mysterious central region of the galaxy so fast that it was actually travelling at speeds of about 24 million metres per second. Wow. That's approximately 8% the speed of light. I was trying to do that in my head and not getting there fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we knew the speed of light. A, yeah. Well, yeah, pretty darn fast. So whatever was there was going to be absolutely massive. And it turns out it is a supermassive black hole. And in the image released, of course, it looks quite similar to the one we saw of the supermassive black hole at the center of M87. We see that sort of orange ring of superheated gas and then the dark patch in the middle, which, of course, is the black hole. I like that you have once again chosen a, a visual medium to describe over a podcast. I keep questioning why yeah. I choose to do this. <laughs> choosing to describe images in this audio-only mm. format, but here we are. No, I think you're very good at it. Can I have any more information about this black, the picture of the black hole? Of course you can. Yeah. Yes, of course you can. <laughs> describe it to me. <laughs> so it's very similar to the one uh, of M87, though of course there are some distinct differences. Mm -hmm. Slight differences in the shape of the accretion disk and three distinct hot spots within that disk of accretion as well. Now, of course, the dark spot in the middle, which is often referred to as the shadow of the black hole, is, of course, uh, showing us that region beyond which light cannot escape, the event horizon of the black hole. So, of course, we're not really seeing a black hole. We're mm -hmm. seeing nothing, and then we're seeing that disk of accretion around it. It's a bit like, if anyone's ever seen the very, very old-school horror movie, The Invisible Man, you can't see The Invisible Man, but when he's wearing clothes, you can see where he is. But, of course, you never actually see him. <laughs> you just see the stuff that's around him. Yeah. It's the same with black holes. Okay, they are the yeah. invisible men of the universe, effectively. Brilliant. Uh, and probably just as violent, if anyone has seen that film. <laughs> Moving on <laughs> beyond that. So the thing about this particular image is it's not taken using visible light. So this is not as it would appear to us if we were close enough to see it. It is taken in radio waves. So what we are seeing is the radio waves that have been emitted by those hot gases as they reach very high temperatures, orbiting incredibly quickly around the black hole, sometimes as high as 20% the speed of light. So incredibly energetic rings of gas. So do you have any idea what they plan to look at next? They've done one of the biggest, they've done the closest. So their next plan actually is not to look at a different black hole, but to look once again at the black hole at the center of M87. Because of course we have now two images of black holes, but what they want to do next is release videos. Ooh. So to actually have videos of the supermassive black holes, accretion disks that are orbiting around them. One of the problems with that is it will require a lot more data being collected and it'll take a lot longer to do. This imaging of Sagittarius A star actually took place in 2017. It took place five years ago and the observations happened over the course of about five nights. And then it took five years to actually process the data and it was petabytes worth of data. So that's millions of gigabytes. Was that five nights and then five years? For collection and then processing. That's, so five nights of observations, then five years wow. of data processing. That's yeah. dedication. And they actually recorded or recorded all of that data onto physical hard drives from all of these different observatories around the world and then physically flew all of those hard drives <laughs> to one location to then process them all together. Partly because 
it was millions of gigabytes, so that's a lot to try and send over OneDrive or WeTransfer. <laughs> but also because they were seen as being incredibly valuable. So just get them on the hard drives and fly them across the world to presumably a very large supercomputer. Fair enough. I think I'd be worried about dropping one of the hard drives. I know, it seems... I'm hoping they had a, had a few backup hard mm. drives. Maybe a few floppy disks going spare. Yeah, it does seem very old school, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and this image, even though this and the M87 image, they almost look a bit blurry. That's what a lot of the public sort of response has been. It's fantastic, but it looks blurry. Why can't it be more sharp or in higher resolution? In fact, what we're seeing is in incredibly high resolution, but basically what you're seeing is the equivalent of taking an image of a donut on the surface of the moon. So that is how zoomed in this image is to the center of the galaxy. And of course the donut is spinning up to 20% the speed of light. Exactly. Which is so to make it trickier. And it's got all of that gas and dust surrounding it in the way. So there's a lot of obstacles to overcome. But what you're seeing is incredibly high resolution but with a lot of obstacles and it's incredibly far away as it turns out. The black hole at the center of M87, when compared to Sagittarius A-star, on the sky they are quite similar in size. So the black hole at the center of M87 is 2,000 times larger than Sag A-star, but it's also 2,000 times further away. So the resolution is actually very similar. I suspect that might be on purpose. It's pleasing either way. Yes, yeah, so when we like look at the them, moon and the sun. they are quite similar. Exactly. The moon and the sun uh, are proportionally the same size in the sky because the sun is 400 times larger but 400 times further away, so they look the same size. But as it turns out, the job is not done yet. As we said earlier, Sorry. their plans are to make videos. <laughs> mm-hmm. So a video of the swirling gases going around the black hole at the center of M87 simply choosing M87 over Sagittarius A-star because the black hole Pavehi is so much larger, so it's less turbulent, so you can capture the video at a more steady pace than the more turbulent Sag A-star. The donut is spinning slightly slower. The donut is spinning at the same rate, but it's a bigger distance to cover. But equivalently, yes. Okay. It's less chaotic. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But that's it. That's that, the image. Great. That's the story. That is going to be very, very exciting to see. Very, very exciting curious. to see. Yeah. Oh, also, as a side note, mm. I mean, it's an incredibly important side note, but one thing, <laughs> one thing they did find is that, as far as they can tell from all of the data they've collected, this black hole does obey the laws of general relativity, So, once again, Einstein was proven to be correct. Great, and we haven't got to reinvent that. That's good. Yes, we don't have to go back and reinvent uh, physics. So that's good. (laughs) All right, important side note. Physics can stay where it is. And now I'm interested to know what story you have brought forward to the table. Right. Well, you have chosen, as we said, an incredibly momentous occasion. Something Mm -hmm. that will be in the history books, in the textbooks, written about... For a very long time to come. It is slightly unfair, yes. So it could, could be considered slightly unfair, but it's okay, because today I want to talk about moon crimes. Moon crimes. <laughs> moon crimes. I'm, already, I'm already drawn in. In fact, 
I'm cheating slightly. I've got two connected news stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both about preparing to go back to our own moon. Back to the moon, that's right. The Artemis project, the Artemis program, run through NASA. So yes, it was announced earlier this month, quite a lot earlier this month, right at the end of April, that the Canadian government wanted to make it illegal for any Canadian citizen to do something on the moon that would be a crime in Canada. Ah, okay. See, that makes sense. It's mm. always quite confusing to to think about what the jurisdiction is in space. If you commit a crime in space, what country are you liable to? Yeah, it's it's a little bit tricky. It's all governed by various treaties between all the space-going nations. The main one being the known as the Outer Space Treaty, which was signed in around 1967. So a long time ago. Long time ago. And it basically said that you're responsible for your own state citizens, wherever they may be. So if I do some shoplifting on the moon, I would be tried in a UK court. Yes. Assuming what you've done would have been a crime in the UK. Which it is. Shoplifting is a crime here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying it's not. But Canada has gone one step further than all these international treaties and accords and has tried to write it into their own law. It's actually part of a budget implementation bill. I haven't read the whole bill, but I did read the sections relating to the moon and the surface of the moon. You've really done your research. Oh yeah, I can, I can read it out to you if you like. Would you like to hear it? Give, 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 give me the, uh, the, give me the footnotes. Yeah. yeah. So a Canadian crew member who during a space flight commits an act or a mission outside Canada, but if committed in Canada would constitute an offense, is deemed to have committed that act in Canada. If it's con- committed on a flight element of the Lunar Gateway, on any means of transportation to or from the Lunar Gateway, or on the surface of the Moon. Interesting. I think you're going to have to explain what the Lunar Gateway is. Brilliant. That's what I wanted to move on to anyway, is the Lunar Gateway. So this is part of the project to return to the Moon. So as we all know, only 12 people have ever been to the surface of the Moon and they went between 1969 and 1972. But NASA has announced that they're going to send people back to the moon. Rightly so. It's been too long. It's been 50 years. Anniversary this year. We'll be holding moon-themed programming here at the observatory. Of Apollo 17. (laughs) Yes, so 50 years. It's what many would consider to be too long since we've been to the moon. Mm. Probably time to go check up on it and see how it's doing. Yeah, check it's still there. (laughs) Yes. Um, But this new mission to the moon is going to be more advanced, more in-depth than the Apollo missions because our technology has improved over the last 50 years and we have more capability. Um, We have been exploring space during that time and exploring humans in space by the International Space Station. Of course, yeah. Decades now. So the plan is to have a launch system taking humans from the Earth to outside of the Earth's gravity, off the Earth, into space. There'll then be something called the Orion spacecraft, which will take humans from the launch system, from the rocket, so outside of the Earth's gravity, up to the moon. And once they get to the moon, there's going to be a lunar gateway, which will be a permanent satellite orbiting the moon, a permanent crewed satellite orbiting the moon. I see. So similar to the International Space Station we have here on Earth, but it will be orbiting the moon. (laughs) And then they plan to take humans from the lunar gateway, down to the surface of the moon and have a base camp on the surface of the moon called the Artemis Base Camp. Now that's exciting. Yeah. This is a big project. Absolutely huge. It must... I dread to think what the budget is. It's going to be big. And the plan is 
apparently to have humans back on the surface of the moon by 2024. In two years. In two years' time. It's almost unbelievable. It seems very, very soon. Yeah. I'm sure it's been years in the making, but that feels so sudden. It does, doesn't it? And I don't know. They are testing rockets, these launch systems, to get the Orion spacecraft out off the Earth. And they are testing. They're putting out tenders for bids and proposals for the different compartments and components of these systems. Um, I don't know quite how far along it is. That, I remember, I do remember hearing about the some of the private bids that were going on for lunar landers from companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. Yeah. So it's it's an exciting it's an exciting thing. It really is, especially this idea of like a permanent base camp on the moon, because the Apollo astronauts were obviously there for very short amounts of time, and having a more permanent setup and having people live on the moon for at some point they say months at a time would be <laughs> really really interesting. But this is where the idea of sort of space law and space jurisdiction comes into it. Because at the moment, human spaceflight is fairly restricted to the International Space Station, to around the Earth. We need to develop new systems if we're going to be moving into space. Right. The yeah. more time we spend on the moon, the more important it is to have our laws figured out. Yeah. And to finally, by the sounds of it, hold those Canadians accountable for their actions. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the government knows something we don't about the proclivity of Canadians to commit crimes on the moon. Those tricky, tricky Canadians. So, for example, the example you gave us, if you were shoplifting on the moon, mm -hmm. it would be a crime because it's a crime here on Earth. But say you took a lunar buggy on a joyride. As I might wish to do. I'm sure you would. Yeah, I know that about you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you have this inhabited base camp on the moon, there's probably some speed limits for safety. Mm -hmm. But those speed limits will be different to our speed limits here on Earth. It's a different environment. It's got one sixth of the right. gravity. So you can't apply the same laws of traffic management to the moon that you have on the Earth. Of course, so, different speed limits. Different speed limits. And if we're going to be living there full time, and you're going to be there, certainly. Me specifically. You specifically, because of the crime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if we're going to be in space for longer periods and on the surface of the moon for longer periods... We are going to have to start thinking more about about crime. About crime. And about laws and space. And who would, if we do then create different laws for different environments, who's then enforcing those laws? What are the consequences going to be? Yeah, I just, I've always been interested about how land ownership works on the moon. How mm. do you lay claim to land on the moon? Well, currently, nobody owns the moon. That's part of the Outer Space Treaty. Right. It's that space is open to everyone and it's open in a peaceful way for, for scientific exploration. Mm -hmm. People are looking to potentially mine the moon because it might have resources that we can use. There was a later treaty called the Moon Agreement in 1979, mm -hmm. which stated that uh, no nation would use the moon's resources for profit or mine the moon in any way without sort of the agreement of all the nations of the treaty. That one, less popular. Less popular. Less popular. America and the UK and most other spacefaring nations have not signed that treaty. Really? Yeah. So the UK government would like to mine the moon? I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. But yeah, again, at the moment, everyone cooperates peacefully in space. And we have these amazing international projects like the International Space Station. But it is going to get more complicated the more time we spend out in space. Sounds very complicated. Mm. But right now, nobody owns the moon. And if anybody tries to sell you a piece of the moon, don't give them any money. That's right. That's not legitimate. People have tried. 
And for extortionate amounts as well. Yeah. Well, it would probably go for quite a lot. If it was legitimate. If it was legitimate. Which, again, if you have been offered that, it is not legitimate. Yes. Do not take up that offer. No. I did have a look at some crimes that have been committed in space. Ooh, do tell. Yeah. Well, there haven't been many. Mm -hmm. The earliest, as far as I can tell, and my favourite, was with the Gemini 3 mission. Gemini 3. So this is pre-Apollo. Late 60s. Yeah, 1960s. Or early 60s. 1965. Mid-60s. Oh, I was so close. <laughs> it was going to be one of the three. Um, so this was before uh, humans had gone to the moon, mm -hmm. but during the space race between the US and the USSR, where they were trying to increasingly colonize space, expand their reach into space. And an astronaut called John Young, um, whilst on Gemini 3 with Gus Grissom, his companion, he pulled a corned beef sandwich out of his pocket. Seems quite innocuous. Mm. So he wasn't supposed to have a sandwich in his pocket. He smuggled it aboard this spacecraft. Smuggled sandwich. Smuggled corned beef sandwiches. He waved it around. He showed it to Gus. Gus apparently took a couple of bites and then crumbs started flying everywhere. Dangerous. Dangerous. That's why you can't take smuggled sandwiches into space. The crumbs with your microgravity can get into your equipment. It can be a problem. That, make, um, so okay, that makes sense. So Gus popped it back into his pocket or into some kind of container. And that was the, the end of the incident. It is captured on the... The sort of flight recordings so you can read a transcript of him revealing the sandwich a transcript of the <laughs> reveal of the sandwich so it was minor it only took a minute or so but it was a problem mm -hmm. um, there was actually an investigation into it back on earth nasa um, several nasa administrators including james webb um, interesting the actual james webb not the space telescope james webb um, they had to testify before the house of representatives in the u.s about this incident about the corned beef sandwich yeah um, a politician referred to it as the $30 million, $30 million sandwich. The $30 million sandwich. Well, their problem was they were messing around on a very expensive mission, and had they caused some problems with their corned beef sandwich crumbs, it would have cost $30 million. Oh my gosh. They didn't cause any problems, so I'm on, I'm on the astronaut's side here. Wow. Uh, yeah. John Young, I believe, did go on to walk on the moon as well, so clearly... Didn't affect his career yeah, too negatively. He didn't go too far. But he so, took a risk. Yeah, I'd call that a misdemeanor maybe, rather than a crime. Misdemeanor, yeah. But yeah. he did smuggle it aboard. There's a couple of others. So the Apollo 15 crew, mm -hmm. they had some uh, stamped envelopes that they were taking to the moon to bring back as, as souvenirs. So this was oh. a real, it was a sanctioned, legitimate program mm -hmm. that the government was aware of. But they took some extra envelopes that the government wasn't aware of that were then planned to be given to a private collector to sell them on. Oh. Um, and that was a real, that was an actual scandal. That was a problem. That one is quite naughty. Um, yes. Uh, it didn't go ahead in the end. So they, they never, didn't smuggle the extra envelopes? They did, but they never gave them to the collector. Right, okay. Um, but it was really the end of their, their space careers. Oh, no. Um, yeah, because it, it was a, a lapse of judgment. Certainly, yeah. To use yeah. that mission for their own private purposes. Because you can take personal belongings with you on these missions, but it has to be very tightly mm -hmm. controlled yeah. for various reasons. It's quite an extreme way to make a quick buck. Is Taking things all the way to the moon. Take them to the moon and yeah. then sell them on <laughs> at a car boot sale. <laughs> Something like that. And then my only other example of a crime is not particularly funny. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah. Um, but it was an astronaut aboard the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Again, an American astronaut. Her name was Anne McLean. Um, and she was alleged to have accessed her, at that point, estranged wife, now ex-wife's bank accounts, from the International Space Station. Wow. Okay. So accessing other people's personal financial information is a crime in the US, so it's a crime on the space station. 
That's that is quite extreme. Yeah, that would have been a real crime committed in space. That um, is. But she was found to have committed no wrongdoing. That is a lot more serious than a corned beef sandwich yeah. or an extra stamped envelope. Mm-hmm. But yes, those are all my crimes. Wow. I had a, a related news story which I feel like I can't mm-hmm. fit in now. But I could say anyway. Say it anyway. Yeah. Um, there was some rock samples collected by the Apollo 17 astronauts mm-hmm. in 1972, as we said. And those rock samples, one of them, was collected, sealed on the moon, brought back to Earth, and then wasn't opened again until this month. So, really? Yeah, it wasn't studied or looked at or analysed in any way until this month. Was there a reason it wasn't opened, or they just had so many? They had about 400 kilograms, which is a lot of moon rock, and they just yeah. was that just a spare? <laughs> um, well, I imagine that it had actually been misplaced and found again, but oh. NASA has stated that it was purposefully set aside to be looked at at some point in the future when our technological capacity had increased. Well, they would say that, wouldn't yeah. they? That's exactly what I would say if I misplaced my moon rock. <laughs> but our technology capacity, technological capacity has increased. We're able to study it with more accuracy and more detail, more precision than we would have in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been opened this month as, again, a sort of preparation for this Lunar Gateway project and for the Artemis Space Camp project. Wow. So even 50 years later, we're still making use of that Apollo moon rock and learning new things simply because we're more technologically advanced now than we were then so we can learn things that we just wouldn't have been able to analyzing it 50 years ago. Yeah and for this particular sample um, they have a an example that's been frozen for the entire 50 years and they're going to compare that to rocks which haven't been frozen for the last 50 years to see if there's any differences in the in the compounds left within those rocks. And they're going to use that information to sort of determine how they'll process rock samples for the Artemis missions. That's very clever. Mm. And that's, it's been a fairly complicated process opening this rock sample. They're very careful with their moon samples, even though they have 400 kilograms of them. I bet. So this lunar rock, mm-hmm. it was, once it was collected, it was vacuum sealed on the moon. So it hasn't been exposed to the air, the Earth's air, any air. So it's not been contaminated by our wicked, wicked germs in any way in any way whatsoever and like I said it remained frozen for that 50 years and it's been at the Johnson Space Center in Houston and they wanted to analyze it at the Goddard Flight Center the Goddard Space Flight Center which I looked up is about a 20 hour drive between the two if you drive it's quite a distance mm. so they had to transport it between the two centers whilst ensuring it remained frozen and still vacuum sealed mm-hmm. and then they're now analyzing this rock sample but again remaining it, keeping it frozen. It's being stored at about minus 20 degrees Celsius. Cold. And still without the Earth's atmosphere, without any air in there at all. So they, for the duration of that 20-hour drive, they've got to keep it vacuum-sealed and freezing cold. Mm-hmm. And I assume secure. Because yes. Because you wanted to steal the moon rock, which would also be a crime. And I don't know how they feel about bumpy roads or potholes, but I personally would be very careful with the moon rock. It is, yeah, that's quite daunting. Until you said vacuum sealed, I would have liked to have imagined they transported it in an ice cream van. <laughs> but maybe not. It could be within its sealed container within the ice cream van. It would be a good disguise as well. Probably yeah. quite secure. No one's going to invade the ice cream van expecting moon rock. That's true. An undercover mission. So I haven't got any stories about new images of black holes that let us see further than ever before Mm. or momentous occasions in that way 
But I had a couple of stories about how we're preparing to return to the moon, which is Ooh. something I personally find very interesting. It is very interesting. Mm. I think that's a great story or a, a good sort of conglomeration of a few stories. And I mean, I think the only thing really to do now is to start a true crime space podcast. Oh, yes. Specifically talking about space crimes. I think so. Though we, we may have gone through the full list of space crimes. I was going to say, in order to keep this podcast going, we might have to start inciting some space crime. We need more space criminals yeah. is what we need. Yeah, for us to investigate. And those crimes are just the ones that we know about. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, there's probably lots of space pirates out there who just haven't been caught yet. <laughs> We can only hope. We can only hope. (laughs) If you know of any space crimes, or you are a space criminal and you are listening, please do send your story in to us. You can remain anonymous. Tweet at ROG Astronomers. With your your moon crimes, Mars crimes. If you know a rover that's been doing wire fraud, (laughs) just let us know. You can remain anonymous. It's fine. But wow, what a great story. I really like that one. Um, So... After you listen to this podcast, head over to Twitter where we will have posted up the Twitter poll. Vote for your favorite story and we will reveal the winner in next month's podcast. But that actually brings us to the end of this month's podcast. So thank you very much, Jess, and welcome to the podcast and to the team. Thank you. And all that's really left to say is thank you everyone for listening and keep looking up. <laughs>